Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. I'm kicking off this series with a conversation with my old friend John Borthwick, the CEO of the New York City-based tech incubator Betaworks. Like me, John is keen on democracy. And like me, he's a generalist, a citizen of the world, well-versed in politics, technology, and economics. So this interview, recorded at the Betaworks podcast studio on Manhattan's Lower West Side, is designed to set a broad stage for our conversations over the next few months. John Borthwick, founder and CEO of Betaworks. John Borthwick. Co-founder, actually. Co-founder. What happened to the other founder? (laughs) That's a long story. I heard it was a short story. Uh, (laughs) Is democracy in crisis? I think that democracy is in retreat right now, and I do think it's in crisis. I think we went through this period after the Berlin Wall came down, you know, 20, 25 years, which almost formed a generation where democracy was, few people in this country said, was on the march and was, for a whole series of reasons, including technology, I think democracy is now proving to be, in today's world, not the only and maybe not the best means to govern a country. What are the most worrying examples of the contemporary crisis today? I think China, by far. The massive, massive change that we've seen in China in the last 20, 25 years Growth of the middle class, complete sort of rise of China would inevitably lead to a democratic China. And it didn't, and it hasn't. And I remember about five years ago, I sort of thought, okay, you know what's going to do it is urbanization and the environmental smog over the cities. And you had a whole bunch of tension between rural, urban. And you now look at Xi, at least today, and it's always hard to judge history at a single point of time, but I think what you have is you have somebody who's garnered and gained more power than anybody has in probably 100 years in China, and saying China's a preeminent example. Is China proof of Samuel Huntington's unpopular argument at the time, but coming back now, maybe a bit more acceptable, this kind of clash of civilizations that the Chinese aren't going to be democratic, and the West, for cultural, historical reasons, are democratic? I think that placing it in the context of sort of political philosophy, it may be premature to do that, but I think that China is setting an example that you could see is spreading. 
so take another very important, amazing country of India. India have inherited democracy from the West. And I would imagine that today, there'll be a fair amount of people in India who'll be saying, wait a minute, maybe this is not the best way to govern. Because the Chinese are succeeding and the West is embarrassing itself. Right. And the Chinese have managed to you know, building people into an economy, into a rising economy far faster than the Indians have. What is the role of technology, particularly digital technology, in China's very sharp shift away from democracy? We started off with no connectivity, and then we went to the Great Wall of China and the Great Wall and basically censored, managed connectivity. And now what we have today is we have one of the most connected societies in the world. Right. And when you talk about sort of the rise of urban China and you think about what's happened in the cities and you think about last mile logistics and you think about how technology has enabled that, you have a marketplace that is in many cases far more advanced than what we have here in the West. Because for a whole series of reasons, one is they went straight to mobile, right? There was no desktop era there. So they skipped that. So you have a more advanced mobile experience there. But then coupled with that, I think what's happening when you look at machine learning and now instances of AI and data collection is that you can see that China is positioning itself from a research capital engineering standpoint, a company creation standpoint, to be a leader in the world, and they have a good shot at it. Everyone talked about this jump to mobile as being empowering for the people, but what you're suggesting then is that China's jump to mobile is empowered not the people but the state with all this surveillance technology yeah yeah and i think we can see that surveillance technology and the surveillance here in the west too but here in the west it's being controlled by corporations like who like facebook amazon google in the dld new york event in may you explicitly compared politics and what's going on in china with facebook do you still stick to that yeah yeah i do if you think about Zuckerberg today and Facebook as a company today, I think has more control over a larger segment of the world's population than people understand, appreciate, and most heads of states have over their countries. But Facebook isn't in the business of controlling what people say. Zuckerberg doesn't care whether or not people love Facebook. He just wants them to use Facebook. Yeah, but I think that when you control the means of distribution of what people are saying, and by controlling the means of distribution, I'm talking about countries like Sri Lanka or Myanmar, Burma or Nigeria, you know, these countries who have in 10, 15 years ago had almost no internet connectivity. And now you're seeing sort of 20, 30% of the population being connected to the internet. And almost 100% of that is through Facebook, right? That is control of distribution. And so if you control the distribution point, and then if you think about how the newsfeed is structured, and the kind of content that the newsfeed is optimized for, it is a control of voice, and it's a control of a population in a very different way than sort of an Orwell or a Chi would have necessarily thought about, but it's a technocratic control of a population. What do you think of Amazon pioneering various kinds of new surveillance technologies? On one hand, I have tremendous respect for these companies and for sort of their ability to innovate at that scale just talked about Facebook and Amazon are just innovating in ways that large companies do not typically innovate. You wouldn't make the explicit comparison between Facebook and China, but you wouldn't do it between Amazon and China or Google and China? Look, I think you can draw the parallel. I think that with Facebook, it is more because of its impact on the way that people are actually talking to one another, because it intersects with the conversational flow of how I connect with my tribe which is inevitably going to be my Facebook-influenced or controlled tribe. 
I think that most of what Amazon's doing is in the purchase sphere. Most of what Google's doing is in the sort of search and discovery sphere. And I think that their impact is lessened for that reason. What do you make of Eric Schmidt's prediction that in five or 10 years, we're in danger of having two internets, one controlled by China, one by the West? Well, I mean, I think that we already have today. We have a public internet that is under a lot of pressure and I think is shrinking in size from an attention standpoint. You mean the public internet in the West? No, public global internet that is under a whole series of pressure, right? What, companies like what, Wikipedia? And so, yeah, the traditional internet that we know and love, right, that we created and that we built as a open, permissionless platform where I can put something up, I can publish on the edge, you can edit on the edge, and all of that promise that some of us love. Apart from Wikipedia, what other examples of that are there? I mean, there are countless examples, Andrew, right? So, well, give me five. From, okay, so Medium and WordPress, Blogger, Twitter, and... Twitter, yeah. Yeah, I mean, oh, you like Twitter. <laughs> well, the first three aren't really particularly important companies, are they? I mean, they're all publishing companies, right? I started with publishing, you know, I said writing, right? And so my experience of the public internet today, in other words, if you look through my click stream on what I read, it is probably on the public internet, it's probably 30 to 50% medium. Today, I think we have a public internet that is shrinking in attention. I think we have a series of geographical regional internets. And then I think we have a set of corporate internets like Facebook. So you don't buy the Schmidt bifurcation of the internet. You think it's more complicated than that? Well, I think it's already happened. So I don't buy that it will happen. I think it's happened now. So we're already there. We're already in the internet. Yeah, there's a Russian internet. There's a Chinese internet. I think we've already balkanized. And I think there's a Facebook internet. How does Russia and Putin fit into the narrative of the crisis of democracy? Are they important players or are they just troublemakers, mosquitoes on the body of democracy? Well, I mean, I think that the emerging economies and the transition that China, India, Russia, a set of countries went through in the 90s, in the 2000s, right, I think are instructive for so many other countries who are moving towards modernization, right? Because in the West, the assumption that we can export democracy light into these countries, and I think Russia was the first example of that. You know, if you go back to Yeltsin and if you go back to the period post the Berlin Wall coming down, I remember when the Berlin Wall came down, right? I remember growing up with this sense of Europe being divided. First time I went to East Germany, it was post the Berlin Wall coming down. It was remarkable. The world had suddenly opened up. And I think that with all of that promise... And that shut down now. The world is no longer open. And that shut down. I think that that closed down. I think that Putin has very effectively sabotaged democracy. You, know, you go back to the clash of civilizations. I, I think the assumption that we've made that it is the natural end state is something that other people are questioning. It may be at some point, but I think that if you sit down with Putin, or if you sit down with Xi, I think that they would question that and say, this is a better system and it's working better for us right now. Do you think Russians and Chinese would agree? The typical Russian or Chinese citizen? I don't know. I don't want to speak for them. I have an American friend who's lived in China for the last 15 years, and he thinks it's pretty great. Well, you're an Anglo-Frenchman who has lived in America for, what, 30 years? Yeah. What do you make of what's happening here? Should we be worried about American democracy? Is Trump just a reality television star who sees the stage for four years, or are there bigger structural issues here? 
Look, I think that in the broader swath of history, I believe that the checks and balances that are being built into the system here in the United States will endure. I do think that the politics have been changed by Trump and by what we're going through now, but I'm not sitting here sort of worried about the American or the future of American democracy. I think that will endure. What happens to the Republican Party? I think that part of it will snap back. I've always been fascinated in this country about the inability for third parties to start up. And so I wonder if this could be a window or a time when third parties could emerge. Trump, it's hard to see this, but I think that he's a symptom, not the cause. And I think that the underlying cause here, a lot of it has to do with technology and how technology is transforming society here. So what can technology do to strengthen democracy? It seems to have played a role and undermining it in some ways or weakening it. What can we do in technology to support the future of democracy? Generally, the way we're building things needs to change. Very specifically, it's sort of agile, fast, break things, we'll figure it out later. The Zuckerberg model. Yes, I mean, I think Zuckerberg's done an amazing job of that, but I would say more generally, it's agile development. It's why I call this place Betaworks, right? Because we believe betas work. Right. And so that sort of rapid, sort of fuck it, ship it, just test it. I think methodology needs to change and adapt. One of the parallels I think about is the methodology of agile development is basically akin to the scientific method of stating a hypothesis and then having a rapid process to test that hypothesis and see if it works. And if you get product market fit, then you go from there. Right. And I think if you look in medicine and in science, we have over the span of you know a few centuries in Western medicine, we've figured out how to have a test and trial methodology to figure out if something's wrong with you and then try and fix it. But we also have around that, we have some sense of guardrails of values of like, how are we going to actually think about what will we do and what won't we do? We've got to start thinking about what we won't do, right? So when AI or when we think about biohacking or when we think about brain-machine interfaces, is the what are the parameters or things which you will not do? More regulation, John? I don't think it's necessary. There's some regulation. Self-regulation or government? Government regulation will play a role here because I think there are some things when you talk about CRISPR, when you talk about sort of biology as data, and when you think about sort of like changing the very nature of our species, so there will be some regulatory boundaries that we want to actually define and push up against. But I think that a lot of this is actually about us seeing if we can, as an industry, and so as people who are building things, actually change the process by which we build to insert in there a sense of intentionality and to understand how we can place the human and enabling and expanding human at the center of what we're trying to actually build. So we should be a bit more moral, you mean, in tech? You know, I use the analogy of the bicycle of the mind, which I always love, Steve Jobs. And Jobs was talking about how he was looking through some scientific American magazines and there was an analysis of mammals and speed. And the human being was like way behind a whole bunch of mammals in terms of our ability just to move, to run, right? And cougars and the condor was like way out there in terms of speed and efficiency for size of mammal. But then you put a human being on a bicycle and everything changes, right? And so he was talking about the fact that computers are bicycles for the mind. And what I love about that is that it places the human being at the center and says the machine's job is to expand on the human. Us thinking about technology as expanding on the human and thinking about how we can have a little bit more thought into 
what are the implications of the technology we're building, I think is part of what we need to change as builders. A few years ago in tech, we used to say that politicians need to learn to be more agile. Are you suggesting now that agility is a problem and that maybe the tech community can learn from traditional politics and politicians, that there could be more of a, a symbiosis between politics and tech? Now, software is in societies, so we need to think carefully about what's the society we're going to create out of that. We as engineers need to start to learn how to talk to other constituents, whether they be politicians, whether they be people, whether they be designers, whether they be doctors, whether they be teachers, is that instead of just replumbing the process of education, we have to like start figuring out how we can actually start working with teachers to enable them to teach better. And so same thing with politicians. And so agility is like, we've deindustrialized sort of so much of the creation process, but we need to now get deeper into that process of development. And one thing, John, that we could do right now to strengthen democracy, what would it be in the short term, not just long-term education reform? Shut Facebook down. I turned off my Facebook a short while ago, and I wasn't using it. After the Cambridge Analytica thing, I went to Facebook and I downloaded my data and I went through all of my data and I was like, I barely use this service and it is using me for all this data. And the amount of data that was being used there, I was amazed about how much data that they gathered. Me shutting down my Facebook account, the only thing I felt afterwards, before I clicked the button, I felt this sort of sense of panic, like what will this mean? And I felt like, does this really matter? And maybe just keep it. What the fuck? It doesn't matter. And then I just deleted it and I felt a sense of relief as just being a sort of one of those latent burdens that I don't need because I don't have that buzzing in the corner of my notifications or anywhere and I don't need it. Maybe not on deleting Facebook, but deleting something to focus more, to have more attention and perhaps be more responsible as citizens. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was sitting down with a friend yesterday, and they had a cigarette warning sticker on the back of their phone. This device can seriously harm your health. And I think these devices have been incredibly enabling, but I also think that they've narrowed and they've changed the way that we live, the way that we communicate in ways far more profound than I think any of us could have imagined. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keen is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. The next one coming up is DLD Munich Conference, taking place on January 19th to 21st, 2019. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. 
We are expecting 1,200 attendees from around the world and 180 international speakers. To see who is coming to DLD Munich, visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. I suggested that John Borthwick might provide us with a broad stage to think about today's crisis of democracy. And what I think we learned from that conversation with John are five big themes that we'll be investigating in much more detail over the next few months. First and foremost, we learned that the future of democracy is an incredibly complicated issue. It stands at the tangled intersection of politics, culture, economics, international relations, and of course, the digital revolution. As John might put it in his trademark genteel way, Today's crisis of democracy is not just a fucking big deal, but it's also a fucking complex problem. There are no simple solutions, no apps to fix democracy. So one of the main goals of this series will be to unravel this complexity and to try to make sense of it without trivializing things. Secondly, China really matters. As John explained, the high-tech totalitarian ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party represent in some ways a compelling alternative to Western free market liberal democracy. It certainly appears a more attractive model to developing nations than the troll market authoritarianism championed in Moscow by Vladimir Putin and his gang of crooks and thieves. Third, fixing democracy requires really bold steps. John's idea of our cell phones replicating cigarette packets and carrying health warnings is brilliantly simple, classic Borthwick. But like the problem of smoking, warnings on labels aren't sufficient. To fix democracy then, perhaps we need to learn to think like the disruptive technologists that guys like John Borthwick invest in. Fourth, the problem of democracy is a quintessentially human issue. John cited Steve Jobs' idea of computers as bicycles for the human mind, as a way of presenting the enormous potential of the digital revolution for the future of humanity. Likewise, I think that democracy is, like a political bicycle, a technology for humanity that improves our species. Fifthly, we can't begin to figure out today's crisis of democracy without trying to make sense of the digital revolution that has radically disrupted the world over the last 30 years. As John noted, Rather than ending in 1989 with the fall of the Berlin Wall, history, or at least 21st century history, actually was born 30 years ago. And alongside the fall of the Berlin Wall, an equally consequential event that same year was the invention of the World Wide Web by Tim Berners-Lee. Indeed, I think John offers a vision of 21st century democracy borrowed from Berners-Lee's invention. So for him... A democratic digital future requires genuinely open networks like Medium. And Facebook, in contrast, as the quintessential model of walled garden surveillance capitalism, represents the antithesis of Berners-Lee's openness. I'm not sure that I'd go as far as John in explicitly comparing Facebook with Xi Jinping's China. And I'm a little skeptical of the importance of boutique content networks like Medium in today's online world. But in spite of these reservations, I do respect John's nostalgia for the original democratic ideals of the internet and for his 
outspoken critique of big data leviathans like Facebook. Next week on Keen on Democracy, the conversation will change quite dramatically, actually. We're going to be talking to David Goodhart, the British-based author of the best-selling The Road to Somewhere, who argues that populism actually represents a healthy development in the history of democracy. David is the head of the Integration Hub and Demography Unit at the Policy Exchange, a think tank based in London. And I caught up with him at his London headquarters to talk about why, in fact, democracy isn't in crisis. So I will look forward to all of you joining again next week for an explanation of, from David Goodhart of why democracy is actually rather healthy at the moment.